a set that revolves around gigantic beasts and kaiju, you would be forgiven for thinking that the human tribes of Ikoria are of little consequence. But even a passing glance shows that for what they lack in size compared to their monstrous neighbours, the occupants of Ikoria's settlements have a rich and nuanced design that makes them some of Magic's biggest characters. Welcome to Magic the Flavoring, the Magic the Gathering podcast. We talk about all things magic, flavor, design, and lore. I'm your host, Andy Mann. Hello, this is Nathan Cancel. And we're here today to talk about the humans of Ikoria. Uh, last week, we did Monsters of Ikoria as part of our lore episodes. Uh, and this set is pretty much all about the monsters, but I think it's become quite clear in the past few episodes that I am actually pretty obsessed with the human tribes that are going through Ikoria right now. Uh, and so I said to Nathan, we're going to be doing a humans episode. And now we're doing a humans episode. So uh, that's how that went down. Um, <laughs> uh, I like I'm, how you make up, you make, you like you make up, you make up stories that make you come across as a douchebag that haven't actually happened. I mean, half you, you, you I think what I, what I do is I make up stories in my mind about how conversations go and they're far more interesting than the conversations which are, I want to do a humans episode. Oh, do you think that's worth it? Yeah, I do. Oh, okay, then we'll do a humans episode. And then that's how we go. So, yeah. We don't have to talk about magic. We can talk about something I else. I mean, it, may, it suddenly makes a lot more sense of how our conversation is going. It doesn't feel like you're listening because you are just listening to a different conversation. It's how, um, I'm, it's good, how I good, the that, conversation goes in my fantasy brain space. Well, I'm glad that this Netflix podcast relies a lot on your fantasy brain space. <laughs> yeah. What have you been watching on Netflix? Let's just talk about that. Let's not talk about magic. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about Tiger King. Let's go, right? <laughs> no, I tell you what I've been watching. Because he's kind of like bonded with his cats, so he's actually top. He's a hundred percent not. If you've watched that documentary, have you watched? No, that no, I know, I know, <laughs> I know. You and I have watched I a know. very different thing. Um, I've been watching the Midnight Gospel, the new Pendleton Ward show. The guy who did uh, Adventure Time is his new TV show. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. How is it? Ah, oh, it's it it takes up a lot of brain space to watch because it's incredibly like navel gazy and psychedelic, and it's it's not like twee. It's not like a kids show. It's it's okay. quite, it's pretty full on. Is, is it, and it's on Netflix, yeah. Yeah. Okay. The cool. Shameless plug for the episode. Cool. I'm gonna go and watch that. Then what, what did you say it was called? <laughs> it's called the Midnight Gospel. The Midnight Gospel. All right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm putting that in now. Cool. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. Good. Anyway, so what are we doing today? <laughs> We're talking about the humans of Acoria. Um. So yeah, the humans of Acoria. The humans are the only sentient race on Acoria, other than the monsters. I think last week I kept saying the monsters weren't sentient, and I don't think I know what sentient means. Obviously the monsters are sentient, because they do have a brain and they do think. But the, the humans are the only uh, sort of uh, evolved, you know, yeah. thinky yeah, brain yeah, like people. It's, 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 the, thinky, yeah. the thinky brain people, you know, like there's no, there's no other like <laughs> Tolkien, there's no elves, there's no whatever else, um, which was kind of a bold choice, because, I mean, the way that races kind of work in a lot of the different planes of magic, they kind of all have their their sort of place, no matter what plane they're on, unless they really subvert things, you know. So for the most part, the goblins are the kind of grunts and the idiots of the plane. For the most part, the humans are the kind of broad speaking, slightly rugged, but still quite intelligent race. Broadly speaking, the elves are the sort of in tune with nature race, or they kind of fall into the kind of aloof, stargazy sort of people. Um, and they could have very easily done this with this plane. I can imagine if they, if they brought elves to Akoria, el the elves would have been essentially what the bonders are. Um, mm. But I really like the the thing that they they only had humans. Like it brings a really nice flavour to the plane. That there are yeah, these I think opposing forces. Yeah, what, what I like is that bad is that if, if you look at there's a, a gremlin card in the um, set, um, and it kind of looks like what the goblins ended up devolving into. Because um, you can kind of imagine if this is the kind of place where you have to be up against um, monsters all the time. You need to be a, a, a contingent. You need to be able to clearly be like a force that can amass an army. So things like elves might have got hunted out for by, by being too sparse. Um, they, the things like goblins might have been too unorganized, um, that kind of thing. So it might be that humans were the only race that could technically like have the, the, the proper mix of being barbaric enough, but also being, you know, like, like able to work together and have that community for that perfect mix um, as yeah. a species. To actually yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like humans are, are always kind of painted in fantasy IPs at being the most resilient of all the races. Like we're never the smartest, we're never the most strong or the fastest or the best at something like in terms of technology. But in, in lots of different fantasy IPs, the reason that humans proliferate is because they have like the strength of heart and the strength of community yeah. to keep pushing forward. Yeah, and that are ants. Yeah. yeah, ants basically. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And one of the, one of the one of the really interesting things, the reason I'm so obsessed with these human tribes of Akoria is because usually in any magic set and really any story that you're telling, because that's all really 
you know, magic sets are is, you know, in terms of the flavor, it's a story pinned on to the mechanical nature of the cards to try and make it more interesting. And usually when you're telling a story, you have a protagonist uh, faction or individual and an antagonist faction or individual. And the best sort of stories that are told kind of mix up those tropes. That's where you get like anti-heroes or you get self-righteous heroes or, you know, like villains mm-hmm. with a cause kind of a thing. And those are always the yeah, best Yeah, betrayals, stories. backstabs. Um, Absolutely. The, all this nonsense, yeah. yeah. It creates layers to people's motives. And that yeah. And, and so usually that happens when you have two different factions or several factions that all have the sort of agency to be able to express those motives. But when you have a set like a Coria where it's just the humans versus the monsters, I can imagine the first sort of pitch of that story wasn't very interesting because really it's just, ah, there's monsters, uh, let's protect ourselves. Or it was, ah, oh, we're the evil humans that are hunting the, the noble monsters doing extinction. And really, it's much more interesting than that because the humans are yeah. kind of cut down into these different tribes and because the monsters aren't necessarily noble or they're not evil, uh, because the human tribes of the plane don't seem to have, you know, outwardly, evil like intrinsic nature and they also are not heroic either like these all these different sort of tribes of characters be they monster or human are quite interesting and i just wanted to give lip service to the to the design team and what they did with the human tribes because like when the cards came out i i really resonated with with the choices they made with color pie reasons with aesthetic design the whole thing so that's what we're doing here today um, yeah, it kind of, it, it's quite nice because when we mentioned we were talking about um, theories of how the story was going to go because when we were talking about it we had no idea if there was going to be any humans in the set whatsoever um, we kind of contemplated the fact that it might be humans in recession or they might be the minor to the, to the monsters major and I'm really glad that they actually did that what I yeah. think resonates with a lot of people is that almost post-apocalyptic kind of feel people like Fallout people like Borderlands that kind of style they like things like uh, Mortal Engines where it kind of feels like as I say like humans are at the brink of survival and this feels like that um, obviously, the point of view we felt from the Sundered Bond is that we see it from the human side of survival. And the set obviously paints more of a, a complicated um, relationship between the two, which I think is quite nice because we've hit the plane almost at a point of where it's starting to just understand its own mechanics um, and the way that the monsters and the humans can socialize together. So it's kind of almost developing relationship as we see it. Yeah. Um, so it's quite nice, quite nice for that. For that yeah. But it does give us like two very different sides of of the human's way of dealing with the uh, the monster threat, as you can call them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, we're going to be talking about the the individual factions. Um, some of them we know a lot about, some of them we don't know so much about. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned the the Mortal Engines franchise because I mean, I mean, I've made the joke in the past that I really hate it when we compare Magic to other IPs. Well, obviously, that's just that's me being stupid because you yeah, I'm never going to stop. So you're going to have to get used. Well, to no, it. no, I, I think it's right. Like you mentioned Mortal Engines, and I'm also going to mention quite a bit through this because of the the, the monsters seem to have this kind of Toho Kaiju kind of feel. Um, the humans also follow suit. But what's really interesting about if you've read a lot of manga or if you watch a lot of anime is that a lot of the time, uh, the, the sort of aesthetic for humans in those uh, shows, a lot of the popular ones, are actually the sort of Japanese manga depiction of Europe and sort of sort of Germanic uh, areas of the world. Like not everything, it just looks like sort of, you know, Edo Japan. A lot of it looks mm. like turn of the century Germany or turn of the century France or Britain or whatever. And that's where a lot of the sort of steampunk aesthetic comes into a lot of mm. Japanese ma- uh, media as well. And you can see those influences in, uh, in Akoria a lot. So I'm going to mention a lot about things like Full Metal Alchemist, um, Attack on Titan, these sort of very big manga anime series, and also things like Mortal Engines. It's all that kind of just about approaching technology, turn of the century. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if if guns and cars and vehicles were more of a part of magic outside of the niche planes like Kaladesh and um, uh, Ixalan, where you have things like muskets or harpoons or whatever, I think mm. this society would have things like muskets and cannons. They've decided to not do that because I think they want to be very careful about how they treat technology in the game. Um, mm. But yeah, it, it has that sort of feel to it. It has that sort of, you know, uh, 1890s to kind of, you know, 1913, just about World War One sort of feel. Um, but through that kind of stylized uh, anime lens. Um, which, mm. you know, feedback loop when those shows come to the West and then we start making media that is a pastiche on that and it kind of goes back and forwards and you get this kind of, mm. you know, really stylized idea of those times. Um, so yeah, we're just going to bit into it. There are, there are three main C's of humans and then there are two other factions that we're going to talk about as well. So the first uh, the city of humans that we know the most about, we're gonna, we'll probably spend quite a bit of time this uh, episode talking about, is Dranith. Uh, Dranith is found in the Savai region of Akoria, and it's where we spend most of our time during the story 
Coria, uh, whether it's in the Son of Bond or whether it's in the cards. Um, and it's where we meet most of the human characters, especially a lot of the named characters as well. Um, so Dranith is a big uh, city. It's a walled city, which has a bunch of concentric rings that kind of make up the different walls of the city. So the outer walls are meant to sort of protect uh, like the third and fourth rings of the of the um, area and then so on and so forth with the farmlands and some of the more rural residential areas on the outskirts of the rings and then the further in the further in you get you get the sort of central hub of the city itself this is also something which again something like attack on titan used to depict in their um their sort of world as well so this idea of having fortified walls in concentric rings is kind of a is kind of a known trope um the city of dranith is a heavily militaristic society so it's not really formed around um, a religion, a central church, and it's not really formed around um, sort of like a central monarchy. It's a, a very militaristic focused uh, society. And is, uh, because of that is also slightly sort of fascistic and authoritarian, um, which is where we get into one of the big, I feel one of the first real big uh, sort of thematic twists of, of how they depict the humans of Dranith. Um, because it's from the outward look, looking in, it's a lot of what we actually don't like about our sort of Western societies. You know, we don't really like it when the military takes over. If you watch any sort of like film, it's you know, shit hits the fan when the military kind of come in and start running the show. That's usually when you know things have turned, right? Yeah, I think the thing about um, Dranath is it doesn't um, have like, well, it doesn't look to have any kind of like Senate um, or, or Parliament or anything like that. It tends to run, in, in, as much as it doesn't have like a monarchy, like a, um, an heir, an heirage, like um, passing down through a family generation. I imagine because a lot of people die a lot of the time in a course, yeah. so you can't maintain lineage. lineage. Um, but it does look like it runs a militaristic uh, leader because they're the one who's going to lead you to survival. And essentially yeah. you are, as a society, kind of essentially pawns to be used in, 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 in the fight of survival. Yeah, absolutely. Which, you, see, you see that a lot in Dranith. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this military leader that is leading them through is uh, a man named General Kudro. Um, the, the military state of Dranith, they, uh, most of the people that are with the military wear uniform pretty much all the time. Um, and the uniform is adorned with green crystals. So we mentioned last week about how Akoria is scattered with crystals that makes up all the kind of... Um, geography of the of the plane and humans use the crystals as well as warning systems so when monsters get near the crystals spark to life they kind of glow and that gives them sort of like a warning signal that they need to sort of you know battle up um and this makes up most of the uniforms makes up a lot of the buildings the the city of dranith is actually built around uh, a central pillar of crystal called the argolith now we mentioned the ozolith last week which is a big uh, crystal structure made up of millions of other crystals this is the argolith which is the the largest single crystal which you can find on the plane of Akoria um, and it's a big green crystal so this is kind of what they they sort of focus on as their warning system. Um, what we do notice about the the sort of military nature of uh, Dranith is that the they don't seem to have like a like a class system per se. What it seems to be is that the military section of Dranith, if you're in the military, you are so, sort of treated like you are higher class, but you're not necessarily treated any better because of it. It's just more that the idea that the, the people of Dranith venerate their military. So we see in the story, The Sundered Bond, that Luca, even though he's uh, sort of a, a hero of the, the Dranith uh, military and he's part of a special unit, he still lives in relatively modest accommodation. It's not like he has a lavish penthouse apartment. Even Jarena Kudrow, that's General Kudrow's daughter, she she lives in a slightly bigger sort of set of digs because she is, you know, part of the military leading family, but it's, she's not in like some big palatial palace. So even if you are part of the military and you are considered to be doing your part for Dranith in this kind of nationalistic sort of service way, you're still not necessarily sort of living in, in the riches of the world. That being said, in the book, The Sunder Bond, we do see that when Luca needs to escape the city because he's uh, about to be punished by Kudro for his bond with uh, the cat, which he gets throughout the story, um, he escapes through the slums of Dranith, which is a small section behind the main military HQ that seems to house a lot of the serving staff that specifically serve the military elite and that these are essentially slums. So whilst there's not a, a sort of class of wealth being pushed around, there definitely does seem to be like a class of status, um, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, 
we don't delve too much of that into the book i don't i don't think i think that's the only time that we see that sort of system um but yeah it is there um yeah there's no excess really in dryness at all like no. you don't you don't see people living very lavishly there might be the poorest but it doesn't seem to be much of like say the richest it doesn't even see like nobility or anything like that um i imagine it the good thing about this is they seem this this society seems to have trimmed all of the uh, bells and whistles you can afford when you have you know time to enjoy life yeah absolutely because everything is focused and pushed on the idea of the defense of the city so the the main colors of of Dranith are mardu colors um because that is what the colors of the survive region but specifically it seems to be black and white are the most prominent this is on the cardboard as well as kind of philosophically um and like when we see Orzov colors in human tribes in other planes planes like um ravnica with the Orzov, or uh, if we go to ixalan with the uh uh, Legion of Dusk. Vampires. Yeah, the yeah. Vampire Legion. Um, their black-white sort of colour identity is kind of a blending, usually of um, like religious authority in the white, the kind of religious self-righteousness, but with the kind of self-defeating, almost uh, oppressive nature of black. So it's like using religion for self-serving means for their own society. So it's, it's a very sort of skewed negative idea of what you can do with a society that is trying to, you know, bring everyone under its rule with the white but is also self-serving with the black and that's not how at least this is not how i perceived the humans of dranith to be they're still talking about a, a large society and they're still uh maybe narrow in their worldview and self-serving to the larger society but it's it's not in the same way i, I tweeted out about this uh not too long ago and i'm going to try and find the tweet that i sent out because actually I've, i think i voiced it uh, pretty well um yeah so the tribe of drenith are not presented as being pure evil or underhanded but rather blinded with conviction the self-righteous white and the self-centered black is referring to the self which is their society they're proud and yet narrow in their outlook um, with their place to the larger world. So the self-serving black isn't about the individual, which is something that we don't see often with black. And in fact, there are other uh, black factions in terms of the hunters of Akoria, which we'll get onto, which they are self-serving to individuals. But the, the humans of Dranith, you know, the, the, human, the military are all about protecting their society, but they're not afraid to sacrifice soldiers in the effort to do so. So you have the white and the black there, like pretty starkly contrasted, but mm. still working together. Um, I, I don't know, am I reading too much into that? I think that's no, no, I think, pretty good. I th yeah, I think Kidro has a very, um, I'm going to say black and white way of thinking about things, because that's really apt for the fact that he's black and white. Um, but you can see it in the, one of the cards as well, Heartless Acts, where um, he states, um, it's them or us. Um, this way of thinking of where it's a constant about survival and everyone's not expendable, um, not expendable, but um, you need to like you, your, your military army is your is a resource that is going to be needed. And if if he feels and and it does very much feel like his outlook is that they're fighting a losing battle. Um, usually, especially in things like you know in any other fantasy IP, you'll see that they'll they'll fight to the last man to stand for their cause. Um, and that is, yes, a very noble way to, to think about things, but it does have a certain black um, aspect to it as well of, of self-preservation ahead, ahead of anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's a very black, black way of thinking about it because he, he doesn't stop to think about whether or not he should reconsider his point of view. I mean, obviously the way we see the monsters throughout the story, they, they, you do see an empathetic side to them and he doesn't even consider it. And that, that as, as you say, that narrow-mindedness, that, that, um, that, that, that inability to think outside of one selfishness, that's, that's essentially what the black side of it is because yeah. they could find compassion. There could be a way to find a middle ground, but he's unable to see outside of you know, his own perspective. So General Kudrow's card, uh, his actual physical like card when he's represented in the game, um, he's got three abilities. Uh, the middle one doesn't matter too much, um, but the, the top one is other humans you control get plus one, plus one. So it's that white anthem effect, that big society feel, right? And then his last ability is pay two, sacrifice two humans, destroy target creature with power four or greater, which is a very black ability, which is the idea that you're sacrificing your resources and you're kind of cutting your own nose off to spite your face. And we've spoken about this in, our color pie episodes about these kind of concepts quite clearly and if i was to if i was to pick a, a magic card that showed the colors black white for what they are like just as in like a microcosm i would usually have said one of the orzov cards from ravnica but i think this card general kudra of dranith from the akoria main set if a new player was to come to me and say oh what's an orzov card like i might slam this down like i think it's a really like neat encaps encapsulation about what black and white does and it's funny that you talk about 
um, how like the military treats their soldiers, like they're not dispendable, but they are needed. They are a resource because you see that on the flavor throughout the cards as well. So there's a card enchantment. Uh, it's two and a black for an enchantment, and it's called Bastion of Remembrance. And it's uh, when Bastion of Remembrance enters the battlefield, create a one-one white human uh, soldier creature token. And then whenever a creature you control dies, each opponent loses one life, and you gain one life. Uh, well, this is just a, like a blood artist effect, which we've seen in black quite a lot. And this is a black card. But it just goes to show that this, within the context of a black-white tribe, you know, even the, even the name of the card, Bastion of Remembrance, and the artwork shows a lot of um, flags with the faces of the fallen on them. This is a society that doesn't want the soldiers to die, but the soldiers are happy to die, and the military understands they will die in defence mm. of the larger cause. Which yeah. I mean, it's, it's just so yeah. nuanced. Like it's so yeah, good. but it also kind of then underlies this idea of because they're so constantly. Um, stuck remembering that those that have died they're, they're, they're constantly thinking it's almost like vengeance it almost feels like at that point of where um, you know like it, it kind of also works with Luke within the story of where he's almost blinded by what the monster did to his contingent because spoilers mm. they die that he can't get over the fact that it might not have been the monster's intention um, so it's, it's funny and it, it would normally you'd just look at this card and think okay it's a white effect like the idea of it is quite white but then the, the reason it's black is because you are you're bitter Every time one of your creature dies, like you're you're poking, like it's almost like you're making your opponents pay for every life that they take from you. Mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. it's it's vengeance. It's not survival at that point. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of essentially what blinds blinds a lot of the um a lot of the the, the black white humans we see from Dranith compared to what we see from the rest of the set. The yeah, rest absolutely. Of the set paints, paints humans a little more open minded, a little less um indoctrinated. Should yeah, you say. and that and that's it, isn't it? That's it's the it's the indoctrination. But I just think it's it's a really nice uh, sort of line to toe where and I'm gonna I'm this is gonna get quoted completely out of context. I'm gonna expect a Sam White to pop up. But is this set made me really sympathize with a vaguely fascist fascistic, vaguely nationalistic, narrow minded society. Because these humans are not outwardly evil. They do have a righteous cause that every other human can relate to. It's the protection mm. of your family. It's the protection of your society. It's just mm. the way that they do it is so, you know, iron-fisted that it, mm. they obviously end up pretty much being the antagonists of, of the Akorian set, despite the mm. fact that to an individual, actually no one in that society is overtly evil. Even General Kudra himself, I would mm. say, is evil, just no. you know, blinded by arrogance. Um, just yeah, you can... You yeah, go on. Yeah. No, I was going to say, you can kind of almost, like, you can, you can uh, empathise with, and you can see their point of view. Um, and what, one thing that people shouldn't forget is that this is basically how every single society on Earth was formed, was mm -hmm. through this idea of having to be selfish to your, to your own tribe, to your own society. Like, okay, yeah, we've, we've managed to settle everything down-ish, um, to a point of where everyone can kind of live in general peace. But, I mean, this is kind of essentially how every society was formed, where this iron-fisted approach of where you couldn't really afford not to be ruthless, otherwise you would die. Um, and, that's, and, and some people were unfortunate the whole society's crumbled and whereas others did quite well um, and it was off the back of these kinds of ways of thinking um, so yeah it's an interesting thing to think about Absolutely. And um, just a few more things to mention about Dranith and then we'll need to move on. There's a line in the book uh, in which is a General Kujo line. I think he's, he's one of my new faves. I'm obsessed with this guy. He's great. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's a line that he says to his daughter, Drina Kudro. Drina Kudro does have her own card in the set as well. Uh, she's actually a commander. She's the face commander for the Mardu deck. So she does mm -hmm. have red in her color pie. And the red, she's a bit more reckless. She's a bit more reckless. She's impulsive and she's not... It's, perfect. it's a perfect example yeah. of adding a mood almost to her or a yeah. way of... A, 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 and, um, what's the word? Um, I ideology not ideology but the way that her yeah, yeah, yeah. Her, her it's like a, it's a splash of color though which i like as well she is definitely yeah. an oars of card because she still has this um sort of aristocrats feel to her but the splash of red shows that of her color she's impulsive she's not afraid to rebel slightly against her father which you do see in the book but mm, she's more in touch with her emotions she is but her ideology yeah. is still always towards dranith no matter what she does in the book you can never argue that she's against dranith and her own kind um so yeah that's a really nice little flavor thing um so this line in the book is general kudro talk to Jarena, and he says, I am not a king, and it is not entirely seemly that my position should pass on within my family. So, even this man who has absolute power over a society, he has absolute control, he is an authoritarian, he is still not willing to say that he is, uh, you know, divinely better than anyone else. It is still the whole society that is, is with him. And the context of this line is that he's saying that he thinks that Drina is one of the people that should take over from him as the leader of the of the nation. But it wouldn't necessarily be the way that they should do it. And she needs to prove herself in her own right and not just because 
she's his mm-hmm. daughter which you know is just mm-hmm. you you would never attribute that line to someone who's just overtly power hungry or evil he understands mm-hmm. he doesn't have control. yeah there's a lot of, you know yeah there's a lot going on yeah, there. there's My, a lot of points of right no it's notes that he's got hard over the years but there are times before where he you know there are degrees of softness to him and, and at no point can you you can always understand his perspective and it's always perspective that's actually quite fair um i don't think at any point he yeah you're out and outright think you bastard um apart from when he cuts the cat's head off. sure but, you know, i mean yeah, even there's... then he makes excuses and he, and he justifies it saying that now these people expect, have an expectation yeah um and obviously from their point of view they don't understand that all monsters are bad so you know it's it's almost like he's having to do his duty it's yeah. at no point is he doing it out of selfishness um he's doing it out of righteousness mm. He still is yeah, a bit yeah. of a bastard. Good old kid, right? <laughs> After having like, said all of that, he, he is, is a bit of a bastard. He is still a bit of a, he is still a, bit of a bastard, and he, he, he deserves to have died on the sword. But, you know, it, still, you know. Rip. By the way, if we, we didn't say at the top of the episode, or we said it, but we did say it last week, um, there are spoilers in this episode. So, um, yeah, if you, good, luck, good luck with <laughs> if that. If you've got this far, uh, and, you're, and you're just, yeah, I'm just, I'm just saying, yeah, you, you've made mistakes. Because <laughs> like, um, we've talked about it in the book a few times already today. So. We have, yeah. <laughs> Last two points on Dranith, and then we'll move on. Uh, firstly, um, just it's just worth noting that we said earlier on that they don't revolve around religion. There does, does still seem to be some religion on Ikoria, at least within Dranith, because a lot of the characters um, reference gods and hells. So like saying, if they, they don't just say, oh my god, they say, oh my gods, and what in the hells? Um, I think we spoke about this before. It could be a religion that's still ongoing on Dranith, or it could be mm. just uh you know a phrase that they use because of an old tradition mm. but there is still I think, something yeah i think any society of this kind of period of time if we are going to use that that quote um they'll be going to still have an idea of where do you go after you die like yeah. clearly they have we, we don't know an idea of an afterlife so they'll still have you know ideas and theories and everything like that so sure and um this last little thing is uh, visually speaking uh Dranith has green crystals as part of their motif when we talk about the other two cities in just a second they have different colors which kind of make up their their uniforms um it's not universal some of them have multiple or just they kind of you know the artists just use whatever the color they want but mostly speaking the Dranith army and the Dranith uh, society uses green crystals so that's Dranith um we i could do a whole episode on Dranith but we've got other things mm. to talk about um the next uh, city that we're going to be talking about is Skysail um, Skysail is not in any one region because it is a floating structure. So it's a, a city that's completely made up of skyships and sky structures that use uh, sort of balloon technology or blimp technology. There seems to be this thing on a choreo called lift gas. We don't know what lift gas is. I'm going to head cannon that it's monster farts. Um, wow. Yeah, with monster farts. Monster Good. farts. Boss. So there are people that are going around bagging monsters' farts behind yep. them. So not like not. That's amazing. Okay. Right. Yeah. Not for, not for the natural sake gas of, from the, the ground. Sake of hilarious head cannon. Yeah, that's fine. That yeah. works. That I'm works. gonna say it's monster farts because that's the level of humor we have on this show. I'm not, yeah, I'm not um, gonna go for the fact that they've got mo- volcanoes and they could probably be catching gas. But no, the monster farts. Yeah. Monster sure. farts. Specifically, specifically brushwag farts. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Skysail used to be a a region called Orn in Indartha. We've mentioned this before. Um, The city of Orn was breached by the nightmares who live in Indartha uh, an unspecified time ago. Um, And the remnants of that city formed the first skyships that then floats off in the sky. And now that's what we have. Um, It's not one set structure. Sky uh, ships come and go as they please. And because of this kind of nomadic... um, almost like free trade feel of sky sail we get a lot of different style of people that live there whereas dranith you can definitely see there's one kind of society that lives there um oh excuse me um in sky sail there seems to be many people you know it's got this kind of very merchant heavy sort of slightly piratey like rebel renegade kind of feel um and a lot of the characters that we meet in the very short time we spend in sky sail in the book um are kind of you know there's like secondhand bookshops and there's you know spice merchants and one of the characters that Jarena meets when she goes to Sky Sail is this kind of very exuberant um, almost like pirate captain he wouldn't look out of place on a courier um, on a courier on Ixalan I keep getting those mixed up this does feel very much feel like what Ixalan could turn into in the future do you know what I mean with like the dinosaurs and yeah you, kind of style I think a courier could just it could they could have been like sim they could have been on the same plane you could have flexed into it somehow it wouldn't mm-hmm. it wouldn't have felt 
it wouldn't have felt out of place. Wouldn't felt too far out of um, place. And this this is like especially that. Um, there is no hard military in uh, Sky Sail in the same way. It's not like Sky Sail isn't a militaristic society in the same way that Dranath is. But there is a sort of standing army, if you like, um, and they're called defenders. So on a lot of the flavor text, we don't get to see this in the book at all. Um, and there's very little on it in any of the other sort of Planeswalkers guides or Gamepedia or whatever. But if you look at a lot of the flavor text on the cards associated with Sky Sail, they say, um, you know, they have a quote, and then it's the quote, blah, 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 this person, Sky Sail Defender. So immediately there in that little word, you can see the, the play design team or the world building team rather sort of differentiating even the feel of the army, which they have in Sky Sail versus Dranith. Um, these people aren't antagonistic. They're there to protect the people and the structures of Sky Sail, you know, in, in a much more sort of... Um, I don't want to say passive way because that seems almost counterintuitive to them being an army at all. But do you know what I mean? They're, they're yeah. a bit yeah, more well, nice. Yeah, if you're going to have lots of like um, hunters and uh, like bounty hunters and people like that, or like there's going to be, there's, and, but you've got bars. It says specifically say in the book there's loads of bars um, and pubs and places like that that you can go to. So clearly there's going to be a bit of drama. So you might need a bit of bodyguarding to make sure it doesn't get out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the uniform- especially when you've got lots of plunder and, and, and treasure around as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mostly they seem to be defending from the, the sort of flying monsters of Akoria because by virtue of them being up in the sky they ha- they sort of fight with a lot of like bird dinosaurs and leviathans you see um, Elementals Elementals yeah. the, the commander card um, Zyrus Writhing Storm you see Zyrus wrapped around a, uh, a balloon that's clearly Sky Sail and a lot of the cards that depict Sky Sail show them having monsters there's, there's um, one called Valiant Rescuer um, which shows basically what I failed to try and describe to you in the past five minutes. So Valiant Rescuer is a one and a white for a human soldier, 3-1. Um, and the card art depicts a, uh, a Sky Sail Defender with a man slung over his shoulders in a fireman's lift running away across a gangplank away from a flying monster. And the flavor text reads, the floating city of Sky Sail has two rules. Don't leave your crewmates behind and don't mess with the guardrails. Um, so yeah, you can you can kind of get from this flavor text alone that that Sky Sail is a much more sort of um, whimsical and uh, sort of all for one, one for all kind of place than the sort of, you know, sacrifice yourself for your city-state version of Dranith, you know. Mm. Th- that's how you can kind of tell. Yeah, them. I'm surprised they're not pirates in any way, shape or form, because they are essentially, what's the, I guess they're not pirating each other, which is what makes pirates pirates, I mm. guess. It's profession, not the fact you're just a skyship, I guess. Yeah, it's, right. it's, it's, I talk myself out of it immediately. Yeah, no, but whatever. I know what you mean. Like, if, if yeah if you were to see a pirate card in the sky sail humans of Akoria, you wouldn't necessarily think it's it was out of place but yeah it's that kind of idea um mm. one last little sort of thing to speak about sky sail because we don't really spend that much time there is that they uh, use red crystals on their uniforms so if you're looking for a sky sail card and you can't quite tell the difference between that human versus any of the others what crystals do they use they use red crystals um I don't know if they're more effective than the green ones. <laughs> they don't mention that I at think all. They, yeah, well, it's like Ralgrin has um, the pinkish red crystals, so maybe it's just the fact that they could get them from them more easily. Because Rugged Highlands also shows red crystals, Bloodstone mm. Caves also shows red crystals, so it might just be what they had available to them, because obviously they have access to everything. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, but there we yeah, go. So that, that's that's yeah. Sky Sail. The Sky Sail, to me, feels very Mortal Engines, the kind of second half of that, that story where they yeah, yeah, absolutely floating yeah. structure full of skyships. Um, cool. The last little human uh, settlement that we need to talk about is Lava Brink in Raugrin. Um, Lava Brink's the place that I, in the last episode I spoke about, which is a city formed underneath the cliff overhang of the volcanic coastline uh, on, the, on the continent that we're on. So the city is kind of hidden underneath this shelf when the volcanic magma from the volcano above spills over the shelf creating a lava curtain and then the people of Lava Brink have used this spilling lava to channel into little canals which they then use to power industry to make weapons and armour it's often said that the people of Lava Brink make the best uh, equipment in Akoria mm. for fighting monsters and for self-defence and they're, they're considered by many to be some of the most sort of rugged people on the plane um, it's worth noting that in their book uh, General Kudro talks about how Dranith is the only city to actively repel monsters, which is kind of mm. part of his whole Dranith is the best shtick. Um, and Sky Sail doesn't necessarily repel monsters, it kind of just has to deal with them and kind of run away from them. But Lava Brink does have quite an effective defense system. And what Lava mm. Brink does is it doesn't use walls like Dranith. What it does is it uses mages to um, coerce the lava spilling off of the shelf into a big sort of curtain 
to protect themselves against monsters trying to invade. And then they kind of part the lava curtain when they need to, which then helps channel it into these canals to power their industry. Um, that kind of touches on something that we haven't mentioned yet. And that is that magic does exist in this world and humans can use magic as well. Um, I think you mentioned in a pre previous episode that they don't use it in the same way that say um, Innistrad uses it where it becomes almost like hard science. It still is arcane magic, but they use, it's used mm. for healing and it's used for, you know, channeling some of the elements as best they can. It's not their primary line of defense, but you know, you see on card arts, there are still people using like counter spell magic and like shield magic and all that kind of thing, mm. um, which Loverbrink does use. Um, they also seem to have monsters that kind of are part of their like immediate surroundings. Whereas in Dranith and Skysail, they kind of either actively repel monsters or they have to run away from them. Uh, lava Brink does have this lava curtain, but they also do have to deal with elementals popping out of the lava itself. You see on several of the cards that you still see people within uh, Lava Brink having to sort of dodge around these lava monsters, which is kind of an interesting idea that they are just in constant danger even within their own sort of territory, um, which I think is kind of cool. Um, and yeah, there's really not much else that we know about Lava Brink. We actually know the least mm -hmm. about it. There's some human cards that are depicted in Lava Brink, but no more than the Sky Cell or the Dranith cards. Um, you mentioned mm -hmm. that they use pinky crystals, which is true on a couple of cards, but then in other cards, they have blue crystals as part of their heavy armor. I think one of the main things we can take from, um, um, from, um, from um, Lava Brink is that um, if you're up against it all the time, you might get stunted in terms of like industrial improvement, um, like technological advancements, that kind of thing. You don't have enough time when you're spending all your time being militaristic to um, have like developments, you know, uh, yeah. which is probably why Lava Brink has the best armor and that kind of thing, because their foundries and stuff, can, they can focus on that, whereas Dragon's has to focus pretty much entirely on defense. Um, and uh, Skystar has to focus entirely on pretty much on being able to, to disperse and flee when they need to, whereas I guess Lava Brink can hulk her down and actually like work on things like industry, which is quite interesting to think. They might, and it's probably why the best armor and stuff comes from there, because they can actually spend the time to actually you know, make it properly. Yeah. Whereas I don't think necessarily in Dragon if they have the time to. No, absolutely. Um, so that's an interesting thing because it's probably why they're so stilted and why they rely on magic and they, you know, they're not, they don't have all these advancements because they don't really have the opportunity to advance because um, they're too stuck kind of either, as you say, defending, running or hiding. So yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting um, way to look at society. Yeah, it um, is. I'd be interested as well because the Lava Brink is, is found on the coast. I would be interested to see whether they have in future sets. Um, I really hope they come back to Akoria. I'm not sure if they will, but we'll see. Um, I'd love to know if Lava Brink has any sort of navy or has any kind of seafaring uh, chops to them because they seem like they would be the society that being on the coast and having access to magma and molten metals that would make some kind of big tanker you know, would kind of go off and we could see like a big sort of um, like war warship kind of like aesthetic to them. I think that'd be quite cool to go and fight monsters. Uh, the, um, yeah. The big thing for me, I think about the coast is that what, from what we know, the monsters only get bigger into the sea. Um, and they, it says on the flavor text of Indath the Trium that um, they were formed by the Behemoth Indath um, and its final footsteps before vanishing into the sea. So I think, I think there's a good chance that boats don't, don't survive out in the sea very long. <laughs> they made a boat once and they never saw it again. Yeah, because they were like, well, actually, if the biggest thing ever to exist is over there somewhere just chilling, maybe we just stay on the land. <laughs> yeah, potentially. Uh, that, is very, yeah. that is a very, very good point. I didn't think of that, um, which is why I have you on this show, Nathan. Um, <laughs> And that is the only reason. Now, that, I mean, yeah, of course, I'm sure. <laughs> it's, it's not your incredible insight into parts of magic that I have no idea about. It's just that. Um, cool. So uh, that is Lava Brink. We don't really know much about Lava Brink. As I say, it was the one that we spent the least amount of time on. Didn't go there at all in the fucking book, which... I, mean, I make that sound like I'm pissed off about it. I'm not. It was a 200-page novella that had a very specific story to tell. But we went to Sky Sail. We spent a lot of time in Dranith. We didn't go anywhere near Lava Brink. So um, yeah. hopefully we see more of that in the future. Well, this is where Uncharted Realms helped because you got a little pocket of every part of the plane. And if you wanted a little bit of pocket of everything, it was great. Obviously, yeah. if you get a story about one part of it, then yeah, you kind of get all your eggs in one basket. So. Yeah, which is, um, yeah. It's the, same, it's the same problem that Eldraine had as well with their different courts. We went to everywhere in the book except the red one. Um, mm. 
I can't even think of what that don't was. Don't want to go to the fiery places, do they? They don't really. Like, we did Chandra last for the course set. Well, we've done it. We've done fire enough. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there we go. Um, the last two big factions we're going to talk about uh, are the Hunters and the Bonders. So these are not city dwellers. These two human factions kind of dwell outside cities. Um, bonders are the big one. Uh, so we're going to spend the last section of our episode talking about that. But I do want to touch on the Hunters. So the Hunters are a section of the human society which um, they're described in the book um, through the eyes of Dranef, uh people at least, as being uh, those who are unfit for military service. Um, which is a really nice way of saying twats, assholes, and people who couldn't follow orders. Um, well, also, so, the insane as well. The people that weren't, yeah, the, the ones. That oh were yeah, a bit sure. Like Being charitable, also people who suffer with mental illness that you know people of Acoria wouldn't understand and therefore cast them out of their society. So those people as well. <laughs> um, so there <laughs> we go. Um, but yeah, these are all the kind of undesirables. Um, the hunters, from what we see in the book, so we follow one sort of group of hunters in the book specifically which are named characters but there are plenty of cards which show hunters as well they actually they probably get as just they're probably the third most represented on the cards behind the humans of Dranith and the bonders um and so we do see a lot of them they are mm. basically bounty hunters for monsters they hunt for sport um anything that they can't sell from a monster kill which is what they do uh, they're monster killers Anything they can't sell, they use to craft armor or to use in magic rituals for um, weaponizing arcane magics. Um, they spend time in the cities. They are allowed in the cities, but they're obviously not necessarily welcome. In the book, General Kudrow uses them as mercenaries um, to mm. basically do the jobs that he doesn't want the military to be seen doing. Um, so they are effective. They, are, they do know what they're doing. And you do get uh, some of the cards do depict hunters which... Uh, are very clearly specialists in what they do visually as well i know this is an audio podcast and i always talk about the card arts um but the 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 hunters of aquaria are spooky fucking people they they look very um aggressive and they look very evil goths, like, traditionally. they look like goths yeah very gothic they look like they listen to uh, they, look, they listen to like black sabbath and things like that i'm not saying that's a bad thing so i used to i used to wear them a lot of black makeup and everything but yeah they look gothic as fuck it's great super yeah. punky super punky um i think if this was in a slightly different genre they look yeah. quite sort of um sort of diesel punk there's a lot of goggles going on there's a lot of like heavy helmets there's a lot of like straps and like you know big sort of heavy leather sort of materials going around and um, some notable cards which shows what i'm kind of talking about you have whisper mm. squad titan hunter and cheville bane of monsters which is the kind of legendary human um who's the the kind of face yeah, of a lot yeah. of these hunters um yeah they do they do work together they're not completely individualistic but it's worth noting that these are the most black manner aligned humans on the plane they are completely mm. their own gain even when they're working together they aren't like friends they are just associates um and i know we've spoken a lot about uh, the black white uh, philosophies of Dranith. Um, it's worth noting that most of the human cards in this set are either black or white, most of them, um, if they're not the Bonders. And these guys are definitely the blackest of the black manner. Um, so yeah, check them out. They are yeah, there's a specific point, they, yeah, a specific point gets made uh, when Jirini's going through that because, um, hunters sell for profit, like all of their different bits and pieces, whereas Dranith doesn't even consider that. They don't look at monsters as something to be used for profit. Um, so mm. obviously it feels like the hunters are, are exploiting the monsters. Um, so from our point of view, as of, um, from what we've seen from the monsters and the humans, like that kind of paints them negatively. Obviously, from their point of view, they are still surviving. For most of their society, they don't seem as badly as we do because we kind of empathize with the monsters even more than everyone else does. Yeah, um, yeah they are essentially like the bad side of it because it is yeah. essentially... Which I think that maliciousness, which is a really interesting choice, because like we've spoken a lot about how they've tried to tell the story of these humans in a, in a nuanced way, and they've tried not to paint any one sort of section of the human tribes as being outwardly evil. Um, and it's it's funny that in a set which has a fascistic nationalist state in Dranith um, and a separatist kind of out for themselves uh, sect in Lava Brink, that the people that we actually despise the most, despite them probably being the most fun in the same way that pirates are fun, um, is is the hunters. Like, yeah, they're cruel. They hunt for sport. They are these Yeah, they torture. Mm. Yeah, they torture, exactly. Yeah. Seen, That's the thing. Everyone's like, oh, be a pirate, be a pirate. Like, pirates aren't like, like they, rape, they raped and pillaged. Raped and pillaged, <laughs> like, yeah. It's not good. No, it's <laughs> not. Um, they are in the book. You do see them 
almost look perturbed. So the the squad of hunters, which Jarena kind of goes on a little adventure with, um, they come across a dinosaur which they have to take down. And it seems that the uh, the hunters are almost about to like torture the dinosaur to death, as opposed mm-hmm. to just kill it outright. And she has to insist that for time's sake they just kill it and move on, which the hunters seem upset about. So yeah, they definitely they definitely are not nice people. Um, mm-hmm. Fairly self-explanatory, the hunters, even though we did spend five minutes explaining them. Um, the last group, and the one that kind of deserves some of the most lip service, are the Bonders, the Bonders of Akoria. So throughout the story of Akoria, we come into the main storyline, um, and Akoria has pretty much been the way it's been for uh, however long, but it's a fairly sort of settled plane. Um, but just before the events of the book and the events of the set, there's something going on with the crystals on Akoria that's causing the monsters to mutate, that's causing the monsters to seemingly become more intelligent and becoming more um, efficient in killing the human population. And there seems to be this phenomenon called bonding in which humans and monsters are forming some kind of mystical intrinsic bond between one another that essentially makes them um, like blood brothers like they are they're psychically empathically connected and it basically makes them two halves of a whole um and this process this bonding is officially in the kind of law of the choreo called the aluda which is e-l-u-d-h-a i think i'm pronouncing that right aluda yeah yeah aluda yeah and this is what this process is it seems to have something to do with the crystals on the plane although like many things with the crystals of Akoria, we have no real idea like neither do the characters like it's not just us as the readers or the or the game players the characters of Akoria have no fucking clue what the, the crystals are really about yeah no, no one knows what's going on <laughs> no no not really the only, the only person who, the only person who seems to know what's going on is someone we, who, don't, who we don't know um, and we get no context of who they are or why they were doing it. Yeah, the mysterious planeswalker. That's, that's the, the yeah, have no fucking idea. Yeah, the are. only person who seems to know what's going on, <coughs> we find nothing about. Absolutely. <laughs> <It's great>. um, <laughs> so yeah, so there we are. Um, the Aluda seems to happen either instantaneously, so at first sight. So, for example, in the book, we see um, Luca and his uh, soon-to-be bonded cat monster instantly form a connection, even though Luca doesn't want to have it. Um, uh, but we also see in the Planeswalker's Guide to Akoria that some of these connections take years to sort of adapt to. So uh, we see the example of uh, a card, which is Winota, Joiner of Forces. It's the legendary creature card. And Winota, you see in the card art, only has one arm. Her other arm is um, taken at the elbow. Um, and it seems to be that the monster which she's bonded to was the one that attacked her and took her arm. And then when she was kind of left there sort of die she regained her sort of consciousness in the wild and eventually bonded to that same creature. Um, it's worth noting that this Aluda kind of happens to anyone. So there are lots of depictions on the card art. And indeed, the story revolves around Luca, who is a Tranith soldier um, being bonded to a monster. And so it's, it's, again, it's not always something that happens with uh, like want or intent. Sometimes it just happens. Um, most of the cities in Akoria um, see this, this bonding as being unwanted. So bonders aren't necessarily allowed in any of the city um, states. And in Dranith, it's actively punishable by death it seems this eluder um but it also seems that a lot of the the bonders lead quite a nomadic lifestyle a lot of the humans that we find in akoria might not actually belong to any individual city state and so this bonding with the monsters is actually beneficial to them a lot of the bonders that we meet in the book seem to be almost confused as to how city life functions so there is this kind of nomadic Mm. one with nature out living with the beasts kind of garrick wild speaker feel to a lot of the, the bonders i think um, yeah, I like. I like. I, I, it's a really nice. Um, I like the. Um, it's this the dichotomy of the story that we seem to find in the book shows it almost as if there's a bonders being weird, whereas what um, what we see from the cards and what we see from the bonders' point of view is that the Dranis actually like the weird part of the plane, and it's almost like the future is in this bonding, this 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 um, cohabitation, this this um, this, um, this this way of of living together rather than living in like separately. Um, yeah, so that's I, I think that's why it'd be a real shame to not go back there because I think in terms of story points it's really interesting to see the humans at a development process where we've seen both sides and we've seen a normal typical fantasy story where you're up against all the monsters like like Innistrad there was no dichotomy of whether or not the demons were maybe trying to be helpful like it was bad versus good yeah and what we've, we've seen plenty of other places where you work already in cohesion and it's and it's and it's and, and like, say, for example, like, um, like Lawwin, where everything kind of lives in harmony, nothing really cares whether it's a different species or not. Whereas now we're kind of hitting right in the middle of a story of going from, oh, it's not normal to, oh, it's absolutely normal. And if anything, it's probably going to be the normal thing going forwards. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, something that is really interesting about Bonders, visually speaking, is we have all these different uniforms for the different uh, sort of city uh, city inhabitants of, of humans. Um, and we obviously have the hunters who have a very striking aesthetic. Mostly, as I said, uh, the humans of Akoya are in the Mardu colours, but the Bonders are in all different colours. So it doesn't matter what colour of manner you know you're looking at you'll find humans in this set that are in that color of manner um, and they're not always bonded as we've seen in the commander sets to uh, uh, monsters that share their color or even have necessarily an enemy color so the the companion cards in the commander sets as we've spoken about in one of our previous episodes you get um a two color monster and a one and a monocolor human um and in the cards in the main set you see this kind of idea as well some of the humans are multicolored, some of them monocolored, and the creatures are clearly of different sort of colors as well um the uniform that they wear, because I, I would call it a uniform, I suppose, the way that Bonders kind of signify themselves is that they seem to dress in garbs that are emulating what their monster looks like. Um, so you can mm. see this in cards like uh, Slippery Bog Bonder. So it's a Bonder and a Slippery Bogle, which is amazing. Bogles are on a Coria, which is fantastic. Yeah, um, that's a really, really good throwback. I really like it. Yeah, and the, the, the Bonder, the human, is wearing... Uh, an outfit that makes them look like a giant bogle even down to the the details of having um, little pendants coming off of the armor that look like the sort of mucus which the, the bogles produce which is really cool um you see another one as well fight as one which is a sorcery spell um which shows a giant cat with horns uh, with zebra sort of stripings and then a, a human next to it with a big headdress that has big horns on it and he's wearing a white outfit with zebra striping which is really cool um something to note as well on that card that that card definitely looks like it's inspired the character of zeph and barrow um yeah absolutely yeah 100 yeah. I'm really glad we see them as a card as well because they seemed really, really cool. Like when I was reading about them, I looked into the set. I was like, oh, we do get to see them and they do look really cool. They do look really cool, which again is a whole other discussion as to why more characters can't cross over between the two things, but there we go. Um, mm. And there we are. So, I mean, that's that's pretty much the Bonders. One last little weird thing about the, the Bonders. I'm sure I've forgotten other things as well, but the, the monsters specifically <laughs> seem to be able to communicate between each other through the crystals of Akoria. Mm. which I find really interesting. Like, well, this is what language. I, yeah, this is what I think is that, right, so what I imagine the crystals are, um, and this is kind of, so you said that, but what I imagine it is almost like universal translators, because I don't, what they need to have asked, asked the question we didn't actually get answered to is whether they could always do this, because if humans are suddenly now be able to com- communicate between monsters and themselves, and with, with, they specifically say that all monsters, as much as they do have clades, have ind- individualistic uh, mutations and permutations, so they shouldn't necessarily have species identities between them, you know? That if they're able to talk to each other, and then now humans and monsters will be able to talk to each other, maybe the crystals are just one giant, like, you know, telephone communications device, and it's allowing, and, and it's all kind of all sparking at the same kind of time, because I don't know if we knew that the monsters could talk to each other before we knew that bonders could happen. That's something yeah. that's never answered. So I think this has maybe all happened at the same kind of time. And it's just that some humans, because they're resilient and they're against monsters, whereas most monsters live um, side by side more comfortably, that it's only now that we're seeing the interaction and, and, we're, getting, and we're getting bonding because typically humans and monsters would be at odds against each other. Yeah. So I think, yeah, maybe, I think it's, all, it's, all, it's got to be to do with all the crystals. Like, it has to be. Right? There's, there's no way it's not. No, absolutely. I mean, I'd be interested to see where this set goes. So by by the end of uh, the book, The Sundered Bond, um, Bonders and, and their monsters are after defending against Luca and his army of monsters, which he's made through through bonding with multiple creatures. Oh, that is, sorry, that is one last little point as well. Um, you can seem to bond with multiple creatures if you're talented enough. So there's one uh, legendary creature, Kinnan, Bonder Prodigy, who seems to be bonded on the card up with more than one monster. So this does seem to be possible so it's not just a one-on-one link which kind yeah, of undermines the whole thing um a yeah, little we bit don't know the extent of it do we like we don't know necessarily if um you'll ever see like say two monsters that are say a pair which yeah. with both of them that kind of thing like we don't we don't know really we exactly. haven't seen enough of it so um, by, by the end of the story that that point kind of backs up that luca is able through the power of the ozolith to basically create an army of monsters at his disposal because he's, he's kind of bonded to all of them or he's authority having authority over them through the eluder um and an army of bonders with Girana and the people of Dranith are fighting against him by the end of this uh, sort of narrative the bonders are finally allowed within the city walls of Dranith for you know whatever purposes they want to have um 
which is kind of an interesting sort of development. And it kind of shows that if we were to come back to this plane, maybe we understand what bonders are a bit more, or maybe mm. bonding will be something completely different. Maybe yeah, we'll we see it a... integrated more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like a, a plane where humans are monsters, like their society is completely joined together. So yeah, we get a real evolution of the plane, which would be a really interesting idea. Um, and that's kind of it for the humans on, on Acoria. I mean, there's a, I've had a lot to say about them, and I know, I know you've found them interesting as well. Um, on paper, yeah. they, they seem to be definitely the sort of the second thought behind the monsters. But I kind of felt like the monsters, whilst their lore was interesting in terms of the facts of what they were, like they're all unique. They all fall into these five different things, but they all commutate and blah, blah, blah because they're so random and because they're mm. so infinite, it's almost like there's less to say about them. Whereas the yeah, human... Yeah, the, card, the cards are interesting, but yeah. the, the, the lore is boring. Whereas with humans, the cards might be a bit more boring, but the lore is way more nuanced. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's why I kind of wanted to, to do this episode. Um, I mean, that's, that's a, that is the lore of Akoria. We've done two whole episodes on it and we've spoken mm. about it during almost three other episodes talking about the cards. I mean, mm. like this plane, now that we've seen it, we've yet to get the cardboard in our hands but now that we've yeah, read the book no, and we've, we've there is so much to say about it already there are so many opinions about so many different types of card like I don't I, every single day I see a different thread about either whether it's mutate or companion there's just some very hot-headed opinion and, and take and it's getting people talking um, and but the card it's really annoying it's in the same way that Theorus was the worst set not to give us a story for like this is one of the worst sets not to get me to be able to get my hands up immediately and play it because mm. I've done one I did one draft on Arena and oh my god this set is bonkers fun it's really 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 good um, so yeah it's, it's really frustrating that we can't get out and play it obviously because of all the current circumstances sure I mean law wise law speaking how does this planes stack up against the, the sort of recent planes that we've been to. We went to a, a new plane not too long ago in Eldrain. We went to Theros. Before that, we kind of capped off Ravnica, and there's been lots of changes going around the multiverse. Like, how's Akoria working out for you as a brand new plane with a, with a storyline? Like, how do you feel about it? Um, I think it's really good. I think it's given, it's given us um, a new way of doing wedges um, in a world where we don't really necessarily want to go back to Tarkir. Um, so I like the fact, I like this idea of triumphs and the fight and five different, um, like the, the different, um, parts of the society also, I, the thing that i clearly like is that i love this transitional period we found ourselves in the story we've seen a really interesting idea mechanically for the cards all this mutate nonsense that you can do great mechanically that's really interesting we've also fallen into the middle of a massive like almost worldwide change um, and development going, going from um, the normal um status quo of you know monsters versus humans to a situation where we have no idea what is what is causing it but there is massive developments happening and it's it's deliberately enforced um, we don't know what happens now that the Azaleth is destroyed. And that there are so many little questions that we kind of want answered. Um, and Theros didn't really give me any questions. I was like, oh, actually, let's go back and find out. I don't really care. <laughs> I'm not going to yeah. lie. I forgot about Theros. Whereas there are, so many, <laughs> there are so many things that have come off the back of this. That I'm like, oh, but I kind of want to know a little bit more. Mm. Like uh, the, the fact that we, we had all five, like these massive mythical apex predators, we found out nothing about them. It, I'm not annoyed about that. I just want to, I want to come back. I want to see more. So I think also, this, yeah, I think this plane... Maybe more so than Eldrain. And Eldrain had a really established law set up because they obviously pulled on fairy tale and Arthurian law. Whereas this was almost, I mean, every plane has some sort of basis in, in Earth mythology because that's how yeah. we as humans tell stories. And again, magic is a storytelling device. Um, but, you know, there's, there's so much left to be explored on Akoria because they made the decision to tell quite a focused story, which was a smart decision in the, in the short yeah. term. But in the long yeah, term now, so. I want to come back to this plane. I'm worried that they won't because it's such a high concept plane that I don't think it's broad enough to be a fan favorite. Mm. A lot of people really don't care or don't like the kaiju feel or the kind of, you know, manga anime depiction of, of human societies. They just kind of think, okay, yeah. it's the kaiju set, whatever. I hope they do. I can see where they're coming from. a lot left to say. Yeah, because it can feel very much like that Attack on Titan analog where you're like, oh, it's being so overdone at the moment. And I can see why things like certain mechanics might rub people up the wrong way. But what I think as well is that it's, it's re realistic. They wanted to try something big and, big and splashy, um, and it's very thematic. Consider we're going back to Zendikar. Realistically, if they do old set, new set, and they alternate like that, old sets, you can go back and live, live the, the sets that you know work and do them in kind of more innovative ways. But on the new planes and the new sets, basically you don't have to go back to if they didn't work. You want to try these big splashy effects. The problem is, as you say, if we don't go back because they receive negative feedback and they don't think it's worth it, then we've lost a real big potential story. Um, Little things like, why the hell was Narset on the plane? Yeah. Yeah, we haven't even you know, spoken was, about the planeswalkers yet. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, so yeah, there's a lot of, there's a, considering how much we have to talk about, how, much, how many episodes did we do on Theros, <laughs> really? 
Like not that one, much. One big so one. So much to say. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that that is something where we we can we can talk about in the future. We can talk about Lucas' story, Vivian's story, and Narset's inverted commas yeah. story. Um, oh, yeah, I think this idea of the bigger arc. I did I did my inverted comma, um, commas for the for the the, the air quote. Um, <laughs> yeah, the bigger arc that we've seen at the beginning in Eldraine and probably this set, we will know more in retrospect in a couple of years where they started, what beats were we were supposed to pay attention to, um, where we saw the beginnings of. So yeah. Sure. I think, yeah, in Luca, we haven't spoken much about the Planeswalkers because I think that probably warrants its own episode at some point. Maybe not now, but in, no, in, but at in some point, yeah, for sure. Um, Luca, I think, will is a nuance, very nuanced Planeswalker character and I think is a bit of a gift to us. Whereas the Kenra twins are fantastically written characters. I'm not necessarily that invested in their story. Yeah, um, yawn, yeah, rich kids, fantastic. Great, yeah, good. whereas <laughs> as Luca, as an outcast of Dranith, that went mm. megalomaniac like mad tried to take over a plane with an army of monsters which he hated because mm. he hates monsters and now mm. has the power to control monsters across the multiverse yeah I think that's, that's interesting really, that's a really interesting this is like, this is like a super, this is a super villain or super villain origin like back in which is not right where now. i thought they would take it i honestly thought they were going to have vivian because vivian is very much an anti-hero and i really thought they might have lent into i, I didn't think this would be a villain story for vivian but i definitely thought mm. that she would be the kind of the thing to shake up the plane like her presence would yeah shake up whereas yeah. Didn't at all. She was there very no. much as a as a kind of observer with her own agenda. Yeah. She was accepted into the story very easily. Like she yeah. didn't, she, her her I'm a planeswalker bit. What did it didn't shake anything up. It didn't break anyone's worldviews or anything. Even a few people said, "Oh, we've had ideas about other." I think they're slowly but surely in like layering this into their into their stories set by set. Anyway, this idea of people aren't so crazy. Oh my god, we're going to break the world order. Yeah. Um, Whereas yeah, she's Luke, much accepted. Whereas Lucas, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Lucas started off as the as the protagonist of the story and ended up as the antagonist. Um, maybe a little bit rushed in the book itself, but I think the the arc it was trying to tell was a very good yeah. arc and left us as with a- Drina Kudrow, who as a commander um, character on the cardboard is now a central character in the story. So it's kind of done a little flip around. Whereas usually we mm-hmm. get story characters that we want to see a card for this time we've had a card which did really well in the story so it's kind of a bit of a flip round um yeah, and Luke, yeah. Luke on the uh, Daenerys scale was probably about seven out of ten on, on <laughs> she, she is, he is Daenerys Targaryen I didn't think of that yeah he's he just completely with the flying with the flying animal that can attack things as well and yeah like, they just wait game of titan yeah there we go done <laughs> game, game of titan brotherhood yeah. Attack, attack on um, the throne. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so there we go. <laughs> any any last thoughts on Akoria? Or is no, that, no, is no. That from, um, I'm I'm looking forward to playing some cards with it. I, I, I think yeah. The biggest thing from this set is that the, the art style on it is so good. They did really well on making everything look really pretty. From mm-hmm. my point of view. Um, but yeah, that's 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 it. That's my final point. Pretty set. Claps. I agree. Claps all around. Um, so guys, uh, this is actually our 20th episode, which I think is a little Ooh. bit of a milestone. Fifth, fifth of a century. That's a thing. Isn't mm. it? I'm making it a thing. Um, what we will be doing, uh, guys, if you want to support this channel, um, support this podcast, we don't have a Patreon. I'm not setting up a Patreon nowadays because people need their money and we don't mm. need your money to keep doing this in the way that we've set it up. So we're not doing a Patreon. What I do want to do, though, guys, is get basically more discourse going with you um so i do want you if you are listening to this and you do have twitter please go to the twitter it's at uh, mt flavoring do hit that follow button what i want to know from you specifically is i want you to at us about what your most flavorful Ikoria cards are the card gallery's been out for long enough now we've talked through the story we've all read the books what individual card one card is your most flavorful bit of magic cardboard from this set let me know on twitter hit that follow button, shout at us, talk with us, cry and laugh with us, whatever you want to do. And then when we get all the submissions over the next few weeks, we'll do a Twitter poll or we have the top uh, submitted answers and we'll find out officially, essentially, what our listeners' top-rated flavor card is. And we'll post all that up on the Twitter. But if you don't follow us on the Twitter, you won't know what the fuck's going on. And then you're left out the story and you'll be all alone, with no friends, and we'll be sat here laughing with all of our friends. So, yeah. <laughs> Does that motivate you? Does that incentivize you? It should be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, know, I, just, I, just like, I just like listening to you guys. It's great. It's what I always start doing is I always start going, hey, guys, we're in this together. And then I always and you end up being like, yeah, well, if you don't, fuck you. We don't, care. we don't need you. I mean, that's pretty much how I deal with everyone in my life. Um, yeah, so yeah, there we go. Like, you start nice, and by the end of it, you're like, I don't, don't get detached. Cast yeah. them off. Cast them off. Make it your choice. I don't it's need you with your validation. You know, my choice. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, if you would rather email us then go on the Twitter guys so you don't have to admit to people that you listen to this podcast is you can send emails to mtflavoring at gmail.com my personal Twitter I'm going to regret giving it out now is at Andy Manface uh, Nathan you can be found at at the Fox in the Moon at the Fox in the Moon you've recently also updated um, your entire suite of Commander decks onto tappedout.com That's yeah it correct. doesn't paint a very, pi- a very pretty picture of my playstyle. Um, what, what do you mean? Well, as in, as in, I was looking through, and like I, I mentioned this to you yesterday, where I got I'm kind of like because I start, I've been playing for a long time. I bought a lot of the decks as they came out year by year, and without realizing in a kitchen environment. Now I play them out in the wild. I have a prosh deck, you know. I've I've, I've an Akusa deck. I have a Breyer deck. I have all I've all the decks. I have a Merrin deck. deck. I have all the decks yeah. that no one likes playing against. You know, <laughs> you have a I, mean, I, have some, I have some quirky ones, but my my fleet is not nice. To it your, is not, your, not your fleet reads on paper objectively speaking now that you've seen it as a list your fleet reads as the who's who of commanders that people are done playing against i think i think is that fair to say a lot of them for the most part like yeah 70 percent. the other 30 percent. you do have some quirky includes like your green elf ball deck is a is a marwin deck which i think is very cool you've got a a kenrith twins deck uh, the uh, partner planeswalkers which i haven't seen anyone else do um but yeah it's always good to get an uh, objective sort of um, yeah, exactly. perspective. And now it allows me to have some flexibility to change the stuff about, because I have nothing better to do. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, if you if you want to check out our, uh, our EDH decks guys and our lists, then hit us up on Twitter and we'll send you links to our tapped outs. Um, I believe they're also in the show notes for the Grenzo and Scarab God episode, if you want to listen. Indeed. Um, yeah. If you want to listen back to any other Aquarius stuff, guys, if you have missed it, because we've actually pumped out quite a few episodes recently, it's, it's easy to miss them. Um, we did do several episodes on Aquarius, so go back and listen to those. Listen to some of our earlier episodes as well. The, the Our flow and the kind of tech that we used for them wasn't quite as slick as it is now. I mean, I say that. We're obviously at our worst tech because we're, we're doing this remotely. But I think, uh, you know, they're less polished in a way. Um, but there, are, there is a lot of good information, especially in our Colour Pie series, so check it out. Mm. Um, other than that, guys, if you want to message us with anything else, if you just want to send some love, then we welcome it all. Uh, for the most part, and as always, we have the magic, the flavouring. See you soon.